If you like politics in question, we think you'd enjoy the podcast, How Do We Fix It? A show that tries to find solutions to our political problems. In their search for ways to make the world a better place, host Richard Davies and Jim Meggs interview some of the world's most creative thinkers, from Neil deGrasse Tyson to Russell Shorto. On a recent episode, they talked to Maya McGinnis, president of the nonpartisan Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, to break down President Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure plan and how to pay for it. So if you're interested in conversations about solutions, not just political problems, you can find How Do We Fix It on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, and more. Welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing and what to do to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, Senior Fellow at New America. I'm Julia Ozari. I'm an Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner, a Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute. And uh, guys, we're in the heart of 100 Days of Palooza, uh, which is that uh, arbitrary moment into a new presidency where everybody proclaims their great insights into what this presidency means now that we've had a hundred days to evaluate. Uh, so this is this is a perfect moment for, for the three of us to kind of talk about the Biden presidency so far, uh, what's surprised us, what, uh, what, what we make of it. And you know, I, I'm personally quite struck by a, a lot of the narratives emerging about Biden being a potentially transformative president, the analogies to FDR and LBJ, although Biden needs a, a three-letter nickname which he hasn't in order to to be a, a great president, which hasn't emerged yet. So I'm skeptical. Uh, but I think the, the way we could start about this is kind of thinking first about the political moment that I mean, I think I think it's in some ways it's it's not the, the presidents, but the moments that make the presidents. So I sort of want to throw it, throw it to you guys. Are we in a transformative political moment? Do we know a transformative political moment when we are in one or, or only in retrospect? Are presidents transformative or is the idea of a transformative president something that we impose on political history only to make sense of it in, in retrospect? Julie, I know this is the kind of thing that you think a lot about. So uh, give us some of that Julia wisdom here. All right, I'll do my best. So I, I've been thinking about this in terms of three things, and none of them really have to do with Biden or the president himself. It's all about the kind of broader context. And I, for me, like the question about Biden always becomes a question about Trump. And I think Biden has benefited a lot from coming after Trump, who is a president who was, as we all know, really, un really controversial, quite unpopular, even before the COVID crisis. And then that became a really, you know, chaotic and uncertain moment. And so Biden has come into office at this time where there is, you know, he, his comparison framework is quite positive. The, the question about transformation, though, it really is like, okay, Biden has done a lot to try to repudiate this more immediate Trump legacy. He's had done a lot of executive actions to undo different different Trump decisions, um, tried to address the pandemic in a really fundamentally different way. Um, and then the, so the, the, the transformational question is how much does that 
change the the structure of of power in politics? How much does that change other kinds of existing institutions? And I think that that question takes us into what's going on within each of the two parties. And that's, I think that's really where where the change actually happens is in social movements and in parties. And it's not totally clear to me yet what's going on. I think Biden has also benefited not so much from changes in the opposition party, but from changes in his own party. That the, you know, having four years of Trump has in some ways allowed Democrats to kind of sharpen their message and find points of agreement between centrists and the further left members of the party. This was this, there was a lot of tension between those two groups at the end of the Obama presidency. And you see more, I mean, there's always, to, to kind of channel James, right, there's always conflict, there's always different goals. But I think that's sort of what's driving some of um, a more like transformative agenda in the Biden presidency. And then the other question is, what's the state of the opposition? And that's not really clear either. There's ways in which you look at the contemporary GOP and and it looks like okay this is a party that is increasingly it's sort of donors and leaders are on somewhat of a different track from its base and there's not really a policy agenda no 2020 platform they're really doubling down on stuff like you know cancel culture and Dr. Seuss and then you know at the same time they have an enormous kind of built-in electoral advantage, so they're not going anywhere. And that's kind of how I see that. That's how I see the political elements of that landscape. And so it's very much still an open question about how much actual transformation takes place. But regardless of the answer to that question, I think Biden will probably get a kind of legacy boost from from the context of the Trump presidency. Yeah, I think that's, um, there's a lot there that I, I would like to unpack, but I guess we have a whole episode to do that. So it's going to be fun. But, you know, Lee, I think to, to understand or to discern if we are in a transformative moment, and I think Julia speaks to a lot of this, we need to, we need to better understand what presidents are transforming. And, you know, is it the parties? And I think we would say yes to that. I think that's what a lot of the scholarship on this subject would say. But if we look at the parties, it doesn't appear that they're that transformed yet. The narrative certainly is something that presidents can change. And, but that also, I mean, we're still talking about things, maybe not in the same way, but we're still certainly talking about the same things that Trump was talking about uh, before. And, you know, the outcomes and the policies may look a little different on, on the margins, but fundamentally, like if you try to step back and pretend that you're 2000 years in the future and you discovered our version of Plutarch or something, it, it, is it really all that different? Or is the process by which outcomes or those policies are produced, is that different? And I think on that front, it it does appear to look a little different right now. But I wonder how much of that is really transformative or is it just something that was always there to begin with that Trump kind of covered up, if you will? You know, how much of this was there all along? And what really intrigues me is you know, the idea of that a transformative president, is this something that we impose on history to make sense of it, but also of the of the present. And it reminded me, as, as Julia was talking, I just grabbed a book. You know how much I like to quote, you know, existentialist philosophers on our show, but uh, you know, Satra in an essay on temporality and Faulkner, which is completely unrelated to what we're talking about, incidentally, if you couldn't figure that out. But there's a, there's a, a description of how Faulkner deals with the past that I think does relate to how we understand 
and impose these concepts to make sense of the present. And he says that he compares it to that of a man sitting in a convertible and looking backward. And like at each moment, formless shadows rear up to the left and right, flickering subdued vibrations, wisps of light, which only become trees, people, and cars a little later as they recede into the distance, right? And so the idea is that the past, once it is the past becomes concrete, becomes, you know, becomes something that is there that we can see and we can understand. And I'm wondering if with these kinds of concepts, which certainly do exist, I mean, I think we all agree that transformative presidents exist. I mean, otherwise, why are we talking about them on a podcast? But I do think it is important to bear in mind is, are we using this concept to make sense of the messy you know, reality of the present, which is always constantly in flux and constantly changing all around us? Well, man, that is <laughs> that is some mind blowing philosophy. But I mean, there's a there's a point there, right? It's you know, which is how, how do we make sense of this moment? I hope there's a point there. Oh no, it's an important point. I mean, so you know, I mean, obviously, you know, we won't know for certain uh, what to make of this moment until you know, until we have some time to to judge it. Uh, and, can but, I, and can I make a suggestion too? Also, can we call Biden JB? I mean, uh, JB, yes, JB, sure, JB, JB, um, President JB, JB, yes. I think it has J- to be JRB, JRB. No, no, I, but see, that's nah, I like JB. You know, Biden's a everyman. He doesn't need that three-letter. It's a little pretentious, right? FDR, right. LBJ, just JB, JB. All right. Well, we'll, 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 we'll I don't know. Uh, Julia's the presidency scholar, so I defer to her. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Are there any, I mean, I guess, it, uh, you know, you have TR, so there's a, there's yeah. a precedent there. Um, for we the, should, we for should the, take a listener poll. I will take yeah. a Twitter poll after this. Yeah. I like it. Totally. That's, you know, only Twitter, tell me Twitter. the result if it agrees with what I said, JB. We'll, 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 we'll keep you in the dark otherwise. But, you know, I, I, when I think about the, the you know, the, this sort of idea of moments of transformation, they emerge when there's a, a collapse of an old order, right? You can only build something new when there's space to build something new. You know, you can only build, build a new city after an earthquake or a war. And you know, I, I think there, there is this, this really interesting moment in which we are having a new conversation about the role of government. I think for, for a long time, the uh, fight in, in American politics was which party was going to be the party that did a better job of ending big government, you know, as, as Clinton famously said, the era of big government was over. And that was terrain on which the Republican Party had an advantage, I think, because the Republican Party seen as the party of smaller government. And that was there was sort of a consensus that government had gotten too big. And before that, in the era, the sort of long era of, of the, the New Deal and its shadow, there was a sense that, you know, government had an important role to play. And that was terrain that put the Democrats on firmer territory. Now, I think we're, we're back to uh, a sense that there are really big problems that uh, only government can solve. Climate, uh, the pandemic, I think, put that into particularly sharp relief, as as well as a concern about growing economic inequality and the idea of small government and less taxes. You know, is something that I, I think is not really resonating with anything more than a small slice of the donor class 
in the Republican Party. And this is the challenge that the Republican Party doesn't really know what to do in this moment other than focus on cancel culture or restricting uh, voting. And it's a moment that is open to reinvention uh, and to to define new lines of partisan conflict. But it's also a particularly dangerous moment uh, because the alternative to fighting over the size of government is to fight over who is included in the political community and what the meaning of America is. And this is where I, I find myself thinking a lot about the 1850s in which the central fight over American politics went from being a battle over tariffs and internal improvements and kind of the, the role of government in, in developing the country's economy to being a fight about whether slavery should be allowed in expanding Western territories and ultimately whether slavery should be allowed at all. And so I've started to to wonder if if the comparison point for Biden might actually be be Lincoln, but I don't know. I mean, what what do you guys think about that? Should should we think of this as as an era similar to the eighteen fifties? I mean, I have to admit that when I was, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, I spent a lot of time in December reading about the eighteen fifties and about essentially what was Lincoln and other sort of more middle of the road Republicans um, efforts to efforts to make compromise and prevent secession and a sort of ever kind of moving uh, target thing that was going on. And it, the parallels were uncomfortable and I had to stop and to read something else. But I actually I want to leave the 1850s for a moment uncharacteristically and um, and pick up on the 1980s as I think this is important. In, in a lot of ways, there was a lot for Lincoln to work with as a transformative president earlier in the country's history and you know this is this is sort of straight out of some of the the classic works in american political development but reagan was working with a much more developed kind of political system that was much harder to change in the 1980s and i think it's really notable that what goes on in in the 1980s as you're talking about like the the origins of this of republican uh, political philosophy and kind of setting those terms of debate that which I think was very effective for the last 40 years that really you couldn't talk about raising taxes you couldn't talk about making government bigger whether you were a Democrat or Republican you kind of had to work within that framework um, but I think it's really worth noting that that framework was not especially deep in some ways it did obviously have policy impacts but was it transformational did it fundamentally transform politics I think that's more of an open question it did, I mean, it obviously disempowered these kind of old school New Deal Democrats. You think about someone like um, like Walter Mondale, who passed away this week, and these sort of more old school, middle of the 20th century liberal Democrats became a less powerful force in politics in general. And these kind of conservative Reagan style Republicans and conservative actors in the Republican coalition became more powerful. So that's a political transformation. But was it a transformation in people's lives? Was it a transformation in the way politics is was done or the way policy is done? I think is, again, is much more of an open question. And I think that's, that's, there's a lot of possibility for that now that Biden will shift again away from those terms of debate. And there will be some shifts in terms of what kinds of political appeals and what kinds of factions within each party become, you know, more kind of more empowered or have bigger audiences. But the idea that this would somehow fundamentally transform 
people's lives or the way politics and policy are done is, I think, not impossible, but very far from inevitable. I think this is a really interesting question, but, you know, in classic fashion, I want to change the topic slightly, but then kind of, I think, come back to it, which is that, I mean, I just want to question the idea of not necessarily transformative presidents, because I already did that, but how this concept impacts our other ideas, right? And so like polarization, this idea of polarization and the, you know, red versus blue, everything is cohesive. And it's this big war between Democrats and Republicans. They all believe the same thing. I mean, we've talked about that at length, or even partisan competition. And the the notion of a transformative president, I think, challenges that in very major ways. And if you talk about the 1850s, if you talk about the 1980s, both periods in which there's churn within the parties, as Julia just mentioned, and, and you mentioned as well, Lee. And I just, I, I find it very unhelpful, those kinds of constructs uh, to understand politics, because ultimately, to get a better idea of what we're transforming, who is a transformative president, I think we have to think about politics, you know, correctly. And that is, it's, politics is an activity in which we participate. It's not a production process. That activity takes place in various spaces where people gather to participate in it, House and Senate, the presidency, right? Separation of powers, federalism, even civil disobedience. Think, you know, Henry David Thoreau, who I kind of identify as this space outside of government uh, where individual participates or Martin Luther King. Uh, then you have the actors who are in that space and you have the strategies and tactics that they employ to win in that space when they participate in politics. And when you begin to see politics in those terms, Instead of trying to look, it's very messy and it's very unwieldy and it's very hard to explain for people whose job it is to explain politics. But I think it then becomes a lot easier to discern and see how presidents transform politics and the impact that their presidency has on politics. And so if you take that approach, you look at the 1850s, it becomes a lot easier to, I think, get a handle on it or even the, the 1980s. So that's kind of where I'm coming from, but as we talked about this topic and this question today, it really was intriguing to me. And I'd like to see what you guys think about it too, is how does this relate to our idea of polarization, for instance? And how can we, you know, let's just, let's just grant the premise that Biden's a transformative president. You know, does that challenge our understanding of polarization or is it just too early in the morning and my brain's not firing on all cylinders yet and I'm missing something very obvious? Uh, what do you think? Well, I, I want to go. It's a great point, James. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, think sometimes we put too much on the president as a singular actor, and you know, not enough on on social movements, as, as Julia was mentioning. And you know, here here I, I I think of Lincoln again, and maybe it's just because I've I've been reading a bit about the eighteen fifties, and you know, thinking about Lincoln in particular, and the ways in which. His views on slavery evolved as the course of the Civil War proceeded, and you know, and also he was, I think, in many ways pushed by radical Republicans and abolitionists as the conflict elevated. I think both 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 sides of the conflict became more more radical in their views on slavery. Uh, but you know, I, I do want to you know think. Think about the role of social movements, and and in some ways, I, I think we are witnessing a, a tremendous moment of social movement energy 
I think the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the broader movement for racial justice w- will, I, I think, be remembered as one of the most important social movements in American political history. Uh, I, I also think the QAnon movement will similarly be remembered as, a, as an important political movement. And, you know, so that puts me in the context of thinking not not about the 1980s and Reagan or even the 1930s and FDR, but the progressive era when there was a a huge growth of of social movements demanding political change and the civil rights era in which there was a a huge uh, movement demanding political change. And, you know, also the the 1850s and the abolitionist and, and, and related evangelical movements. And so, you know, I, I wonder, I'd love to get what you guys think about the role of social movements in defining presidencies. I mean, I think we often put a lot on, on LBJ as the prime mover of, of civil rights, but you know, I, I, I've read some histories that suggest that LBJ was, was really responding to uh, the pressures created by the, the civil rights movement and, and the organizing of, of civil rights actors in the South. And that if there was no Martin Luther King and no John Lewis and no other organizations in that movement, you know, we we might not remember LBJ as that kind of transformative civil rights president. Uh, yeah, can so, I, Julie, can I just jump in real quick? And that was an observation, yep. I think, to kind of connect it all, is that if you look at social movements, I think you're onto something, Lee, because if you think about transformative presidents and transformative politics, you're changing the status quo and social movements, they really emerge, right? In terms of civil disobedience, when you have a whole bunch of people that are just convinced that absolutely persuaded that the status quo needs to change and that politics as it normally functions, isn't going to do that. And so maybe in an essence, the system is ripe for to be transformed in that moment. So maybe it is a good bellwether for whether or not we're in a transformative period. But Julia, sorry to jump in there. No, that's okay. I have a lot of thoughts because I'm I'm writing about this right now and I'm teaching this uh, this week. I was teaching a lot about the civil rights movement and mid 20th century presidency. So I have, I have many, many thoughts. And I want to I want to highlight some political science insights here. So one guest that we've had on the show, Megan Ming Francis, has written about this. I mean, I think that she has written really convincingly about about the many decades it took for the NAACP to be um, a, a critical actor in that in the civil rights transformation and the way in which that group developed you know, legal capacity, but also lobbying capacity and work to move the needle with various with various presidents and that like Johnson is coming many decades into that into that process. Um, the other the other work I'd highlight is Sidney Milkus and uh, Dan Tishner and this book they have about social movements and presidents, and they kind of highlight this tension between the, the sort of what James was saying about the the needs and demands of social movements that to exactly to sort of do something that's outside of the political process versus this more um, sort of institutionalist dynamic that happens with presidents. And I think that's a really, I mean, that's a pretty live debate among American political development scholars about what what the the instinct of the presidency as an office is is it affirmative of the existing political order or is it you know this would be more of the scaronic take is is it fundamentally more antagonistic um and i think that it really matters what you look at 
And if you look at politics of race, I think the affirmation and maintenance story becomes much more prominent. Um, And leading up to LBJ, the presidents, even transformational ones like FDR, really kind of scrambled not to... Um, not to change some of the institutional status quo too much. And so I think it's it's kind of an open question. I put this to my to my students this week about why were things different with Johnson? What you know, why was he so receptive or more receptive to these civil rights claims? Why did he see a kind of opportunity to move on this issue in a way that Eisenhower really didn't want to touch and and JFK struggled so much with? And there's a bunch of different possible answers. We if I can make a third reference here. Sorry, this has really been my this has been my project for a while now. Um we read a chapter from a book called Nixon's Piano, um, which is about the president of race, Kenneth O'Reilly. And that chapter really emphasizes how much Johnson, although he's sort of publicly moving on civil rights and voting rights, he doesn't want to be too publicly associated with some of the more radical leaders of that that movement. And one of the claims O'Reilly makes is that it it's very short-lived how much the the white electorate will tolerate policy that they see as aimed at benefiting black Americans. And so it's it's a story really about black about white backlash is is how this chapter proceeds. And it's very, you know, it's very swift and it's it has a lot of political implications and it creates this kind of situation in which Johnson is doing one thing in policy, but then is really constantly trying to dodge this political fallout. And that I think actually points to a transformation going back to your comment, Lee, about the significance of the movement for black lives. I think this actually points to a transformation that has been happening for some time, which is that when so when when Johnson was president, this multiracial democratic coalition was in the beginning of a decline and was about to lose a substantial share of its white voters in the South, but also notably in you know parts of the Midwest and other places. It seems that at this moment, you do have a kind of multiracial coalition that is partially trying to drive the agenda of the Democratic Party, trying to drive the broader policy agenda, um, trying to, to change policy at the federal and state and local levels, and that, that it is part of an ascendant multiracial and um, kind of broader liberal coalition. That, I mean, I could be wrong, right? That could prove not to be ascendant. This, these majorities could could be ephemeral. Um, I also think that there's, this is not to say that, you know, all has been solved. I think there's potential, there's tons of potential for backlash against policies that seem to, that really alter the status quo or foreground the needs of, of Black Americans in ways that ask white Americans to make sacrifices. I do think that all of those dangers and potentials are very real, but it is notable that you have an ascendant multiracial coalition. And that's, that I think shows a transformation that has, at some point has already occurred. And, and that's sort of, I think, one of the things we want to look for with transformational presidents is that they do tend to come at the end of these longer processes. I mean, I'm, I'm just over here saying hallelujah, because I feel like we're starting to understand politics instead of just seeing it as this like macro forces that are constraining individuals and we have no choice. And this is the outcomes that always are produced mechanically. But you're I mean, what, what you got what we're talking about here are individuals getting together in collective action, trying to do things. And I love the civil rights movement because I think it really highlights what transforms politics. And, you know, you think you think back to even like 
King's uh, letter from Birmingham jail, where he says, we must come to see that human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes to the tireless efforts and persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. This is, this is Schottschneider. This is, this is Baumgartner. This is about changing the status quo. And it takes effort from the outside and people more than one person, and I think the president can certainly be a big part of this, to change the status quo. And when we look at the civil rights movement, and we look at the civil rights acts, I think the most important civil rights acts, not in terms of policy outcomes, but in terms of the processes and what goes into producing outcomes, is are the 57 and the 60 acts, and not 64, because it's a lot harder to get the ball rolling earlier in those other years. And if you think about it in 1960, which is what, the 86th Congress, it's on the agenda. Johnson's trying to run for president. You know, he's certainly got, as Robert Caro tells us, some kind of personal history that lends him to be sympathetic, I think, if you take the Caro view and not overly cynical view towards civil rights. But it's more than just Johnson. I mean, you have the what happens with the, um, the sit-ins at the Woolworth lunch counter, right, in Greensboro, North Carolina, which and all of a sudden you have this explosion of action with like John Lewis and Martin Luther King and others. And it's sending a signal to people, but also to policymakers that if something doesn't happen, this is going to continue. And I think that's absolutely critical. And if we look at Eisenhower, I mean, Eisenhower in his State of the Union address that year, it was what, 48 words, less than 50 words were devoted to civil rights. Now, granted, it was Eisenhower, but you have in 60, you push through this bill. And if you look at Johnson's role in that, he he went down to the floor, he called up some on the Senate and he called up some piece of legislation, a bill that was so unconsequential that inconsequential that it passed the House by voice, I believe. It came to the Senate. No one thought what was about to happen. He calls it up, asks consent, unanimous consent. They put it on the floor. He puts it on the floor. And then he says, OK, now let's have a civil rights debate. Everybody come on down and offer your amendments. So, yes, he has some agency there. But then he proceeds with Dirksen to try to table any amendments that are offered that would be somewhat significant to that. So, Johnson, there's two sides to him where on one hand, he's trying to keep the debate under lock and key. He's trying to tap it down, keep control of everything. But he's also looking for um, credit if you're cynical or some meaningful progress if you're not at the margins on civil rights. And I think ultimately that's why nothing ever happens and it takes Mansfield in 64 but it does show you that there's a lot of going in on the inside and the outside that into this messy reality that we call politics. And the last point is I can't say something without you know saying something big and abstract. But in general, when we talk about politics, we I think it's as scholars and journalists and others who write about politics, we try to impose order on it. We try to talk about equilibriums. We try to talk about steady states because that's easier to understand. But it's it's much more fascinating and interesting, and I think correct. To see politics is about disequilibrium and conflict and change and seeing these periods and what goes into them is absolutely critical to understanding it. Absolutely. So it's interesting that we sort of began this conversation thinking about the presidency uh, and you know, we've kind of moved to the forces outside of the presidency. And politics is a complex dynamic system with no equilibrium. Uh, I believe, and I think that uh, there's plenty of uh, of evidence for that. And you know, one of the things about this political moment is, you know, a sense that the the ordinary processes of politics are stuck and, and gridlocked, so that action is flowing 
outside of the normal channels of, of Congress and, and legislatures and into social movements and media and, and other venues. And, you know, the, the, the idea of the, the Schatz-Snyderian changing the scope of, of conflict, expanding the scope of conflict, changing the dimensions that the terrain on which we we fight is different. I mean, it, it's the goal of the political losers uh, or those who feel like they're not getting a hearing to expand the scope of conflict. And you know, that's what I think a, a lot of folks are doing in this moment. And you know, the president is is just an actor in that larger, much more complex, dynamic system of, of politics and society. You know, I think one thing in this conversation we've you know focused a lot on historical analogies, and you know, I think we're we're always trying to find something that gives us an understanding of the present. But I think. One challenge is that there are certain things about this moment that are just entirely unprecedented. Uh, I think that the nationalization of American politics, the, the level of hyper-partisanship, the, the uh, urban-rural divide, the uh, level of, of education and secularization of one party. I'm curious what, what you guys see as kind of unique about this moment that makes it hard for us to turn to history as a complete guide. Yeah, there's a ton there and I would maybe zero in a little bit on the on the nationalization of politics because that's really where where we see the the kind of political incentives of the different political the kind of you know power actors members of congress specifically as having i think really fundamentally shifted in a way and they're really now tied to to the president and tied to you know are you in support of or opposition to the president that's all tied up in that's all tied up in party and in the sort of national development of national constituency and i think that changes the legislative game and gives biden a lot less room to to be a legislative leader i think that's really critical the other thing that i think is is sort of worth noting is that biden biden won with a much smaller margin than than most of the the transformational presidents that we're that we're talking about and so is i mean it's this sort of persistent division and also kind of flatness of the political system is sort of unresponsiveness of public opinion and political behavior to events and and that's i think that's really notable i'm still sort of sorting this all out myself yeah i what i think is really unique about right now that makes it really difficult for us to look at history and apply lessons that history teaches us in in constructive ways or any way to the present and the future is that how we think about politics has changed. And this is major. This is so fundamental. We now think about it. You've heard me harp on this time and time again, but we think about it as a production process. You know, we see Congress as a factory. We're pushing issues to the presidency, to the courts. We're not seeing a lot, although it's starting to maybe change a little bit inside Congress. Um, but we're not seeing a lot of action there because we have this focus. When you think in terms of production, you want to control the means of production. So you got to play in elections and elections are always important, but now they're the be all and end all. That's where you make policy in elections, not in between elections. And the actions in between elections are designed to not mess up your chances to win in the election. This is a bipartisan phenomenon. It seems to me that everybody on both sides of the aisle shares it. And what happens in that 
moment is that I'm not sure, and this is what I'm trying to wrestle with though, I don't think you can transform politics when you think about politics in this way, fundamentally, because you aren't, you're not acting. You're not, I mean, in, you're not acting in ways that can be transformative, that are disruptive. You are not finding, you know, lines of cleavage within party coalitions and trying to explode them. You're not trying to form new coalitions in a very kind of Baumgartnerian, Schatzschneiderian, whatever you suddenly uh, way uh, to basically alter that balance of power between yourself and the proponents of the status quo. You're not doing any of that. You're trying to win an election. And, and yes, part of winning elections means kind of attracting people. But even on that front, we're not speaking to the other sides. We're not putting our arguments in, in, way, in language in, in ways that meet people where they are to try to persuade them or anything like that. We're basically just demonizing the opposition in an effort to win elections. And we think to ourselves, if we just keep doing this, then the promised land will arrive in the promised land. Everything will be great. It will never rain again, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem is there's always another election. And so we keep putting off these big, bold, transformative type things, or even the small things that may help to create those big transformative moments. And so I want to use this question to really challenge the whole concept of transformative politics and ask, can we change politics? Can we can we transform it when we think about it in these terms? I mean, the second we see Congress as a factory, it's like the least productive it's ever been in its history. It's it's fascinating to me. And until that changes, I'm not sure politics is going to change. Let me ask a, a final question here, um, you know, uh, building on what you're saying, James, about policy itself. Uh, so, you know, we have the uh, $1.9 trillion stimulus bill that's passed that I think in many ways is, is a quite transformative investment in the economy. There's uh, the, the infrastructure bill, which is, you know, in many ways, really a climate bill as well. Uh, there's HR1, which is a kind of a change in the rules of, of how we do elections. Uh and you know may, maybe some other policies, DC statehood, but n it's not clear how much of this will pass, especially without the passage of the filibuster. So one way to think about this is that you know, in order for there to be a, a truly transformative moment in which we change the terms of our politics, we actually need for Congress to to just do a lot of stuff. And to, to pass all these policies and, and those passage of these policies, you know, will potentially change change the game of politics. A lot of these policies, you know, particularly the, the spending policies are, are quite popular. But, you know, there's another way to think about this, which is that so much of partisanship seems locked in. And, you know, even though Biden's policies are widely popular and Republicans now admit that they can't even think of a way to, to really attack Biden, Biden is still deeply unpopular uh, among Republicans. And, you know, it probably has an approval ceiling of maybe 55 percent, uh, which suggests that things are stuck and locked in. So would passing the entire democratic agenda in this moment actually transform politics or are we still kind of locked in? So James, why, why don't you respond to that? And then Julia, why don't you have the final word here? I think House majorities, and I really want to link what you just said to this concept of you know the production process and the majorities are actually quite divided. And I think that's fundamentally why 
things are stuck and locked in. The House can pass these policies. I'd add immigration to that as well. But And they can put them on the agenda and vote on them because the House majorities can control what else gets considered and doesn't get considered. So they can move forward with things without having their coalition fall apart in very visible ways. The Senate, on the other hand, cannot. They, for various reasons. And that's why they try not to put these things on the agenda. And you don't see these issues go forward in the Senate. And I think that really explains not so much the filibuster, why these uh, different policies aren't going. Because most of the things you mentioned, I think, would pass the Senate in some in some form if you put them on the floor, even with the filibuster. But the problem is you have to tolerate a whole bunch of other stuff, getting votes and it reveals a lot of divisions and it makes it harder in your mind if you're a leader to win elections because your party's now all divided and things are all cattywampus and you don't know what to do, right? You can't say, we're the Democratic Party, we're the Republican Party. So you avoid those issues. And I think that really explains why we don't see transformative type of action on these policies. So I think there's essentially two things that are kind of somewhere near the mainstream agenda that... Um, could transform politics. And I don't, by somewhere near, I don't mean, you know, necessarily um, going to happen. And they're both pretty big items. So one is that, that the institutions could shift in a way that where policy and political majorities were, were more reflected. I think the most realistic proposal on that front is filibuster reform, which is not to say that that is likely necessarily to happen. But I think that this idea that there's there's a kind of small but consistent majority behind a lot of these policies that simply cannot you know, make affirmative types of change because the system empowers veto players so much. I, I think that's one that's one systemic feature that if it changed would actually alter politics, um, and including, you know, possibly mobilizing new types of majorities around different policies. You know, if it was no longer possible to kind of thwart policies in the minority, then it, there would be, I think, different political calculuses made. But the other thing is, you know, more broadly and kind of related to this, which is to really change the kind of outcomes of people's lives. I think one thing that we don't deal with very well in political science is the way in which people's lives are kind of defined by by their workplaces. I've ranted, I think, on here before about workplace democracy, about kind of underemployment, um, about the way people's lives are defined by their struggles with, with health insurance, those types of things. I think if, if there were a sense that kind of the system worked for people, um, there were safety nets, obviously, is obviously associated with one side, but I don't think that it necessarily has to be. If there were some sense that um, that politics and that the broader system, the economic and political system, were more functional and people could advance in their lives, that that would be really transformative. And that's obviously not going to happen with with the wave of a wand or with with one policy. But it is something that I think really was at the core of the tension in the Obama presidency over the kind of transformative promises. And then this very, you know, system system confined response that didn't really alter those foundations for most Americans. Well, it's a lot to think about here. And, you know, these are questions that, uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll all be wrestling with throughout the Biden presidency and, and for years to come. And, you know, as usual, we, we, we've done our politics and question thing, which is to 
uh, ask a lot of questions and then generate even more questions in response. So thanks, guys, for a, a really interesting conversation uh, about the Biden presidency and, and the role of, of social movements and political transformation and parties and pretty much everything. So this has been another episode of Politics in Question, and we'll see you all again next time. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. What does it mean to live in a democracy? It's a big question. And over the last three years and 150 episodes, it's a question the Democracy Works podcast has tried to answer. With guests like Anne Applebaum, Jonathan Hype, and Wynton Marsalis, the show hosts deep dive conversations on issues affecting our democracy, from neoliberalism to conspiracy theories, and from gerrymandering to ranked choice voting. Democracy Works is produced by the Courtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and Central Pennsylvania's NPR station, WPSU. Search Democracy Works in your podcast app and subscribe to receive new episodes every Monday morning.